Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey there, this is Thomas Frank from collegeinfogeek.com. And if you're a listener of the College Info Geek podcast, you should know that this is not a typical episode of the podcast per se. It is actually something I'm trying. It's a little bit new. I don't know if I'm going to do it very often, but I wrote this post called The Ultimate Guide to Budgeting in College. And it's about 4,300 words. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I did an audio narration of the post for people who want to get the information into their brains, but don't want to sit there and read this gigantic uh, piece of writing that I did. So uh, this is it. I'm giving it to you. So uh, this is an audio narration of that post. I'm just going to go right through it. And the one thing I'll note is that there are a lot of links in the post to other resources and things you may want to check out. So... Um, obviously you can't get to those links in the, uh, format you're listening to right now, and I'm not going to talk and say the actual links. So, uh, just before we start, I'll say go over to collegeinvogeek.com slash budget. It's a short URL to the actual post. If you want to find those resources and links to other posts that I talk about or that I've linked in the actual written version of this post. But, um, besides that, enjoy the audio narration. And I'm just just going off of um, a whim right here. So I'm not a professional narrator or anything, but hopefully you enjoy it. So uh, budgeting as a concept is very simple. You manage inputs and outputs, hopefully keeping the latter higher than the former. And if you're anything like me, you learn the basics of budgeting when you were about 10 years old playing Age of Empires 2 because you had to manage the production of uh, resources, wood, food, gold, stone, things like that, in order to build new facilities, research technologies, and advance through the ages. Eventually, you just typed in the cheat code for the red sports car with laser cannons and tore the Celt a new one, right? But, and it pains me to say this, there are no laser shooting sports car cheats in real life. Uh, sucks, right? Yeah. In this life, budgeting is even more important because the lack of cheat codes and the general importance of having enough money to eat means that you need to have a little bit of budgeting competence. And if you actually want to graduate from college and end up debt free or achieve some financial goals, then you need to know a little bit more. So today I'm going to impart my thoughts and experience in the realm of budgeting with an emphasis on doing it in school. However, and I didn't actually write this, but I want to say it. If you're not in school, the post ended up being just sort of a overall philosophy I have in my system for budgeting. And this is what I use as an adult. I'm no longer a student. So if you're not a student, it will be useful to you. But I did work in some specific little tidbits and technical details that will apply to college. So it's for college students, but it's useful for everyone. And I'm the co-host over at Listen Money Matters, another podcast on personal finance. So I'm not only concerned with students these days. But this is a College Info Geek post, audio narration, whatever what do you want to call it. So, for college. So anyway, back to the narration. As a student, you've got to deal with several factors that don't come up in other stages of life. And you generally got pretty small coffers to boot. So, section one. Do you even need to budget? 
So let's put something straight here. If you look at my other ultimate guide style posts, like the one on how to build a personal website, which you'll find linked there, for example, you'll notice that this one is decidedly shorter. Well, sort of. And why is that? Well, to be honest, I don't really want you to have to put a whole ton of thought into budgeting on a regular basis. It should be simple. And after some initial setup, it should become little more than a background process in your head. It shouldn't be an item of too much concern once you've once you structured everything correctly and fixed your spending habits. Think of your in your mind, uh, in your mind's ideal picture of budgeting. What comes up? Do you think of this financially savvy member of the household sitting at the table every month, writing down spending caps of all the family's different expense categories and minutely balancing available funds? This, my friend, is called micromanaging, and it's something you probably don't want to be doing with your time going forward. Incidentally, it's also something the best budgeters actually don't do. So here's an excerpt from Jeff Yeager's book, The Cheapskate Next Door. Quote, contrary to what non-cheapskates seem to think, Only about 10% of the cheapskates polled said they have a formal written household budget. For most of us, a budget seems too much like a diet, a plan that's always looming over you, bringing you down when really what you want or need is a lasting lifestyle change that makes the desired behavior effortless. This, ladies and gentlemen, is why I am such a geek about habit RPG. Because habits, in addition to well-defined goals are always better than micromanaging things and trying to control every little aspect of your life. This is true for studying, it's true for dieting and exercising, and it's definitely true for budgeting. So let's dive into this purposely brief, for my standards at least, guide by starting out with those all-important goals. So section two, define your financial goals. So let's talk about tactics and strategy for a second. When I was a wee freshman business student taking my intro-level business classes early on in college, the professor defined three levels of management that make up classic corporate structures. Wow, that is a boring string of three words. Anyway, those three levels are strategic management, tactical management, and operations management. And this is actually a pretty good way to think about your financial life. Like a business, you've got income, expenses, and hopefully goals. You don't have interns to fetch you coffee every 15 minutes or a crack team of elite hackers to do your espionage dirty work, but yeah, we'll deal with what we've got. So strategic management is concerned with the big questions that steer the entire company. Where do we want to go? Where are we now? What values do we have? How are we going to get more interns to bring us more coffee in the future? I don't have enough coffee. This this coffee is getting cold. Uh, your strategy defines your direction, and it is the basis for all the smaller decisions that come after it. Now, tactical management, on the other hand, concerns itself with how the strategic goals will be achieved. What systems should we build? What choices should be made for individual decisions? As these decisions are made, operational management ensures the day-to-day workings of the business run smoothly and stay in line with the strategy and the tactics. So let's put this in terms of your own life. The strategy is your financial goals, your current situation, and your overall money philosophy. The tactics, the systems you set up to deal with regular money flow and uh, individual financial decisions, and then the operations are your day-to-day money details. And here we're largely concerned with your spending habits. So to do well in the technical and operational areas, first you need a solid strategy, a financial goal. So if you look at the life section of my impossible list, and um, you can get to that over at collegeinfogeek.com slash impossible, you'll see that I have a very well-defined goal for my own finances. By the time that I, and I meaning me and my girlfriend Anna, turn 40, which I I guess she'd be 38 because I'm a bit older than she is. 
Anyway, by the time I turn 40, I want to have $900,000 invested. At that point, I'll be able to effectively retire early because I'd like to live on 4% of that, which is $36,000 a year. And even based on extremely conservative estimates, uh, return, estimated returns of 5% per year, that money would never run out. The, there would still be a 1% difference in how much I'm taking out and how much it's growing. And uh, more likely the return would be more around 7% at least. So, you know, that isn't to say I want to stop working at 40. Creating things brings me far too much joy for that. I'll probably never stop to be honest. But, um, what I do want is to detach my need to work from my need to pay for my existence. My goal is to build a system that guarantees my existence at my desired, which is sane level standard of living, no matter what I do after that. From there, I'll be free to pursue any project I like, regardless of its profitability. It's awesome. So based on that goal, we need to save about $25,000 a year. Now, this is a bit simplified for the purposes of this post. If I wanted to, if I want to adjust that 900K figure to account for future inflation, then I also need to adjust the yearly contribution to the investment account as well. But still, it gives me direction that I can apply to the tactical decisions. Knowing how much I need to invest per year, some simple math will tell me how much needs to be socked away each month. But that goal is crazy, you might say. Well, here's the thing about my goal. It fits my current situation. At this stage, I've graduated from college, I have no debt, and my business is growing at a pretty good clip. If I make a good income, or no, I do make a good income, I can't read sometimes, I'm sorry, and reasonably, I can expect to meet my savings goals if I'm smart about my spending. But two years ago, that wasn't my situation at all. I was still in college, I had about $14,000 in student loans, and I didn't make nearly as much money. My part-time job was sitting in the basement of a research department in a psychology building, um, fixing their website, and teaching people how to combine PDFs on the Mac, (laughs) which is incidentally... Really easy once you figure it out, but not very obvious. Anyway, at the time, my financial goal was very different. It was one, to make enough money each month to cover my expenses, and I have have some leftover from emergencies, and two, to destroy my student loans before graduating. It's a pretty crazy goal, but that was my goal. So this was a very different goal, but it was still well-defined based on my situation. And since it gave me clear direction, I was actually able to pay off all of my student debt before my graduation deadline. And there's actually a post about how I did it linked in this budgeting guide. So here's your mission at this stage. Sit down and create a financial strategy. Set goals that make sense based on what you want out of life and what your current situation is. Be optimistic, but also be realistic. Doing this will help you create the systems that will start moving you forward and into the next section we go. So this section is called do a financial SWOT test. So going back to our business analogy, another oh so exciting term we learned in that business class was how to perform a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, which looks at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So guess what? You can and should do this as well, but let's modify it a bit. Instead of SWOT, your personal analysis of your finances gets the decidedly less memorable acronym of E-out. And I wrote, don't ask me how to pronounce that, but now that I'm saying it, I have to pronounce it somehow. So I-E-O-T stands for income, expenses, opportunities, and threats. So it's not much different than SWOT, just two letters swapped around. 
Take a bit of time and assess your own situation in these areas. How much do you currently make each month? Is that income stable? Mine fluctuates because I run my own business. But maybe if you've got a job, then it's going to be stable. Cool. So how much do you need to spend each month and how much of that is essential spending? For opportunities, think about the probability that your income could increase in the near future. Are you going to get a full-time job soon? Can you get a raise? Can you add a side gig? Uh, Is your significant other going to be working pretty soon? And then do the same for threats. Think ahead and assess any potential big expenditures that might come your way. One exercise I recommend doing here is getting your quote-unquote number. And by that, I mean the number of dollars you have to spend each month. Before I was a uh, co-host over at uh, Listen Money Matters, my friends who were the co-host at that time did an episode on this concept and uh, I went to the blog post that they wrote about it and left a comment defining my own number. So I've sort of fix that for this post. I pulled out my business expenses and here's what I got. So my rent is about $305. I pay a little bit more for a covered parking spot because I'm a little bit spoiled at this point, but cut me some slack. But anyway, I could, I could take that away. I could get it down to 305 and uh, the utility is probably about $75 a month since I live with roommates and they split it four ways. Uh, my phone is probably 85. I'm thinking I'm on Verizon. It's like 75 plus some fees and whatever car insurance is 15 bucks a month. Super cheap because my car is really, really old and I intend to keep it that way. Groceries. I think if I really got frugal with my food spending and cooked every night, I could get down to $200 a month. So <clears throat> my number quote unquote is 680 bucks a month. Now living in the middle of Iowa with three roommates, this number is exceptionally low <laughs> Also, it doesn't include my business expenses, as I said, and it's certainly nowhere near what I actually spend, but this is the bare minimum I need to keep myself alive in my current standard of living situation, whatever you want to call it. And uh, this would mean canceling all my subscriptions on things like Spotify, taking the bus or riding my bike everywhere, and being very frugal on food, as I said, but I could do it. So pretty low light, right? Your number may be higher or lower, but either way, it's good to know it, and it'll be integral to the next step. The goal here is to be aware of where you are instead of lost. When you've got this step on lock, let's move on to the next one, which is creating a money pipeline. And just to just to tell you right up front, this is the most visual part of the post. And I highly recommend going and checking it out just to see the graph that I drew, because it's going to be very hard for me to describe accurately this picture in my head. But um, let's talk about this money pipeline. So I have a brain that likes to visualize a lot and creates analogies for everything. And that's why I started the post out by talking about Age of Empires. So sorry for that. If you don't understand analogies or fishing metaphors. Anyway, To that end, I think of money management in terms of water flowing through a pipe system. The main reason I use this analogy is because I want to create a system that tells me where my money should go. I'm well aware that human willpower is limited even when we build strong habits. So externalizing as much of the process as possible is a smart thing to do. So my goal is to build the system and then let it do its work and keep an eye on it. So um, this is the money pipeline. I'm kind of going to stray off of the script for a little bit here to describe it to you. So basically, I drew this system in which at the top, your uh, the water, the money flows in, and it has to fill um, in a certain area, like a reservoir, before it can flow to the next one. So the first thing it's got to fill is the monthly expenses, fixed expenses, things like rent, utilities, and bills, and then it'll go to the next area and fill the reservoir, which is debt minimums. So if you've got student loans, if you've got credit card debt, if you've got any sort of debt, car payment, whatever, you've got minimum payments that you have to make every single month. So in the pipe system, you're going to make those payments. 
And then uh, after that, you go to your checking and we'll talk about checking accounts later. If you want to fill your checking to a specific amount, the water, the money then flows into an emergency fund thing. Once the emergency fund is filled, which it should always be filled, so subsequent months uh, income flowing will just flow right out of that one. It'll start filling in the debt one if you have debt. And then once the debt one is taken care of and starts filling past all those things in the pipe works, we're going to start filling into investments. And if you look at the post, which is collegeinvogeek.com slash budget, once again, uh, you'll see that there's a little tiny pipe that's like, just sort of sticking around, catching a little bit of the water that falls out of the debt one, the debt part of the fountain. So this is why I used a fountain analogy for this part instead of a pipe. It sort of flows out of a pipe system and into a fountain, a multi-level fountain. Because once you've paid off your debt, then uh, you want to start socking a lot of money away into investments. That's going to pay for your retirement. It's going to pay for your ability to live a long time and have a good standard of living when you stop working. But you want some of that money to fall into an extra pipe that kind of takes it off to like a fun area. So fun, charity, etc. whatever you want to do with that money, it's yours. Just make sure that a good amount of it is being socked into investments. So that's my pipeline. Um, now, the one thing to note is that This is a conceptual pipeline. It does not represent the actual order of payments you'll make. It's just in your brain to think about how your money should flow. So take your debt, for instance. You won't make a minimum payment, then fill your checking account, then go back and make another payment. Rather, you'll use the pipeline as a planning tool when your income hits the bank account. So an example thought process is, uh, hey, I owe uh, 50 bucks on my student loan minimum, and I need to put 800 into my checking account to keep it at my desired level. But I've got 2000 to spend after my fixed expenses are done. So and my emergency fund is filled. So I can actually put 1200 towards the debt this month instead of 50. I've got that minimum area filled in the pipeworks. And now I can start filling in the big debt fountain. So let's make one big giant payment and start uh, really hitting that debt hard. So let's talk about the checking account. My uh, my Listen Money Matters co-host, Andrew, wrote a post defining his basic investing blueprint, which is linked in this post. And in it, he stated that you should have 250% of what you spend each month on stuff, quote unquote, in your checking account as breathing room. Now, personally, I agree with this sentiment, though I modify it a little bit for myself. I want to have about 250 to 300% of what I need after fixed expenses are accounted for. Things like rent, bills, etc. Groceries are not included here. I'm just talking about like the things I know are going to be charged a specific amount of money every single month. So I can come up with a hard number for these fixed expenses and then I can automate them all, which we'll talk about soon. And uh, after that, I want my checking account to be filled after that number is taken into consideration. Now, you can go either way based on what you're comfortable with. If you're rolling with at least two and a half times your number, quote unquote, that you got on last step, then you won't be completely boned if something happens. And that's what you want to avoid. Being completely boned sucks. Yes. And it's almost always a one-way ticket to either massive credit card debt, crippling stress, or family members begrudgingly loaning you money and then sort of secretly hating you. So, um, let's, for one last thing here, you may be wondering, do I need a savings account? I didn't hear you mention it, Tom. Well... The answer is maybe here's the thing. There isn't much of a difference in the interest you earn on a savings account versus a checking account based on inflation and what you earn through investments, uh, the interest there, what you can earn from investments, the interest potential from savings and checking accounts, both might as well be zilch. So essentially all a savings account does is complicate your finances. It's just one extra account you have to stay on top of. Andrew, my co-host doesn't think you need one. However, 
If you are concerned with your ability to keep your spending in check, then uh, one thing you can do is keep a portion of your money in a savings account. Now, my roommate, Martin, does this, and he calls it his spending firewall. Uh, he knows that the money in his checking account can be spent, and the money that's socked away in the savings account, while not an investment, is still not really accessible right now. So it's, it could be something useful. Now, beyond the complication, a savings account doesn't actually hurt you unless you have a crappy bank that charges you to keep it open, in which case you should leave that bank. So do what works you, for you. <laughs> um, but since you're probably a student, you might actually have a pretty good reason, an additional reason, for keeping a savings account. It can act as a clear holding area for funds dedicated to guaranteed semesterly expenses like textbooks and fees. These things are not happening every single month, but you know they're coming. They're a little bit on the horizon, and you want to have funds readily available for them, but kind of sequestered off. So let's talk about the emergency fund. So this should be a reserve of cash that's only for emergencies, as in life as you know it cannot go on if you don't pay for this type things. Now, nobody agrees on how these things should be set up, so I'll just kind of stick my own neck out here and say try to have an extra $500 to $1,000 on hand. As a student who probably doesn't have a family, you're unlikely to have a huge emergency, so there's probably no need to postpone paying off your debt to build a gigantic emergency fund. Now, maybe if you've got kids uh, and a house and you live 30 miles from your job and only have one car, then yeah, maybe you want to start building up a little bit more of a cushion, but for the most part, I think people listening to this have uh, very few situations that are highly probable to happen that would need any more than a grand to take care of. So let's start, uh, you know, thinking about the debt after you get that. So I actually keep my emergency fund in my investment account. So in terms of the pipeline, the top part of the fountain, the emergency fund is the same as the bottom part, the investment thing. The crucial difference, though, is that I started paying off my debt after I'd hit that comfortable emergency fund level, which I never touch, so it just stays that way. And then once the debt is gone, then I can start adding to it and building that investment. Now, some people might say it's risky to keep my emergency fund in an investment, and I'd agree if I was investing in individual stocks or something really risky. However, I'm a passive investor, and all of my money is in mutual funds that are unlikely to drain overnight. Highly unlikely. If you could look at the data, uh, 2008 was, you know, dipped, didn't go all the way, but it dipped. Uh, other than that, you know, there haven't been a whole lot of crazy, volatile, terrible time periods. And so, I mean, it's, it's a, a bit of risk is there, but the probability says it'll, I'll be fine and I have my checking account filled to 3x or more in case. So do what works for you. Maybe you want to keep it in like a money market or something, as Dave Ramsey says. Um, make that decision based on your tolerable level of risk. Life is risky, but maybe you can make it less risky based on what you're comfortable with. Anyway, moving on. So now let's automate most of the process. Let's leave it to the robots, right? Now with the pipeline model now firmly planted in your prefrontal cortex, you're no longer unsure of what to do when you get paid each month. There's now a clear picture of how that money should flow and where it should be allocated first. So let's take it a bit further. Let's build a system that takes care of as much financial heavy lifting every month as it can. So we're free to focus our attention on the things that matter, like Smash Bros., now, the way that I've done this is by setting up automatic payments on almost all of my monthly fixed expenses. I've got auto pay enabled for rent, electric and gas, internet, cell phone, all my subscriptions like hosting, Spotify, uh, MailChimp, business, things like that. And in addition to my fixed expenses, I also automate my investments. So every month I've been in auto investing 500 bucks into my Vanguard mutual fund. 
And actually, just this morning, when I woke up, uh, based on my goals, expenses, and current income, I increased that auto investment to $1,000 a month. And it'll actually need to increase further if I'm going to stick with my goal. So I'm going to have to increase my income. That's kind of personal stuff, but uh, totally cool to talk about it. But uh, the gist is, right now, it's 1000 bucks a month, and it's automated. I don't have to make the choice to suck away money, which is great because sometimes sucking away money can be hard because the delay on the reward for that is way in the future and the delay on the reward for like a new computer or a vacation is not that far off. So it can be tough to make that decision sometimes and I leave the decision to the robots who don't have a problem making a decision. So yes, and also when I can, I route the expense transactions through my credit card so I can rack up the cash bonuses. And uh, ooh, that reminds me, I want to do an aside about the credit cards. So let's do that now. So credit cards, my friend, they are powerful, powerful tools. Credit card is like a katana lent to you by your badass samurai grandpa. What? You don't have a badass samurai grandpa? Oh, well. Anyway, use it sparingly. Only a few watermelons cut in midair and clean it well on a regular basis, and that katana will stay in great shape. Oji-san, which is Japanese for grandpa, in case you didn't know, He's going to be pleased. Go around cutting too many watermelons and neglect to clean the blade, though, and you're in trouble. Oji-san will have his sword cleaned even if it takes you five years of polishing. So, um, you better keep it polished. The only problem, the credit card companies, companies though, are evil Oji-san because they actually want you to be in debt. That's how they make money. Uh, through the exorbitant interest fees they charge. So they create all sorts of perks like cashback rewards and miles and all this crazy stuff to entice you to spend more on the card. So not to get this into this too much, uh, but here are my hard and fast in bold text, hard and fast rules for using a credit card. Number one, never use more than 20% of your credit limit in a month. And number two, always pay the full balance on time every month. Those people who tell you to carry a balance to build some credit are wrong. I have never ever carried a balance on my credit card and my credit score is great so uh, to those i have an idea for you now this is not something that i do but if you want to build some credit while keeping your spending in check and you're maybe not sure about your habits you're kind of shaky on whether or not you're going to be responsible with it you could do this number one set some of your fixed expenses to be auto paid on the card excuse me Uh, and then set up auto pay on the card itself from your bank account Number three, lock the card in a drawer. So think of your credit card. Either way, think of your credit card as just a different way to pay from your checking. It's not a line of credit. It's just a different way to pay. One that's a bit more complicated, has an extra step, but can have some benefits like cashback benefits. I think I've got about $250 of cashback on my credit card. Now, since I use mine on daily expenses as well, I don't know if there's some psychological extra spending that's gone in there and canceled out my benefits, but I've still got 250 bucks I didn't, wouldn't have had, um, or at least wouldn't have thought I had sitting around. So there's some nice benefits. The last thing I'll mention here is, as I said, I don't pay, or I, or I didn't say this. I didn't say it. <laughs> this is what happens when you go off the script and try to add things. <laughs> Anyway, the last thing I'll mention here is that I don't auto pay my credit card since I use it for day to day expenses. Now, that's what I said. I always want to make sure that I'm aware of what my balance is and when it gets paid. So to that end, I have a recurring monthly task in Todoist, which is the to do app I use to go in and pay the card. And I also have a weekly habit in Habit RPG to check up on my entire financial picture in Mint. And Mint will tell me my credit card balance. It'll tell me what my checking balance is. 
uh, what my investments are doing and all that kind of stuff. And I can make sure, okay, yeah, there is definitely enough money in the checking account to pay for the credit card as there always should be. And I will be fine, but I don't auto pay it because, um, even if you have one late payment on your credit card, it can really ding your score. And I'm sort of a completionist and perfectionist kind of guy. So I want the highest score possible without putting in too much effort. So I never, ever, ever want to have a late payment. So I always make sure that is done. I think if I accidentally paid late on the internet bill, I could probably just call up the ISP and be like, yo man, I forgot. Here's the money. And they'd be cool with it. But I don't know about the credit card companies. So I'm just going to make sure that's always good on lock. All right, so you got your automation system. Now it's safe for non-regular expenses. And this is where we get into some more student-specific things. But hey, it might apply to you if you're not a student. So as I mentioned before, one thing you have to deal with in college is semesterly expenses. These expenses don't happen every month, but they can be substantial. So you need to plan for them. So each semester, uh, you'll probably need to plan uh, to pay for or buy textbooks, uh, pay for fees, tuition, dorm fees if you're not in an apartment, uh, supplies, other things of that nature. And it's essential to plan for these expenses ahead of time. Uh, how are they going to be paid? So you might have student loans coming in each semester to pay for this stuff. Though if you do, make sure you understand the true cost of them. And I've written an article about that. You may have scholarships and grants, which is awesome. Maybe mom and dad are still paying for it all. Awesome. Though you should try to at least understand where the money's coming from and where it goes. Uh, Whatever your funding source is, though, make sure you know what it is and know whether or not it'll cover these non-regular expenses. If it won't, you'll need to modify your money pipeline a little bit with a saving goal to deal with these with the excess you need to pay for. Oh, and uh, if you end up with extra money from scholarships, grants, loans, whatever, it should go into the pipeline as well. If it gets past the emergency fund and it's subsidized, meaning you don't need to pay interest on it until after graduation, I'd probably put it in a savings account unless you're close to graduation and know you won't need it for a future semester's expenses. Um, But if that's the case, you can actually start paying debt or maybe even investing it. All right, so now we're going to get our spending habits in check, and this is a big one. So this is the point in the process where most people start getting stressed with their budgets. Once you have your fixed expenses taken care of and your saving quotas have been met, what's left over is yours to spend. But remember, you're aiming to have 2.5 to 3 times of your number in your checking account at all times. And people get stressed here because their spending habits don't match up with their goals. So they sit down at the end of the month, they pout about how much they spent on Starbucks lattes and restaurants and movies and stuff, and they declare, once and for all, that they're going to cut down their spending from here on forward. It's the same thing as diets, same thing as anything else. Then they're right back at Starbucks the next morning because, I mean, I'm in a rush today and I'll start making my coffee at home tomorrow, I swear, but today's just just not, I'm I'm just not feeling it today, but uh, tomorrow is going to be the day, I swear. Now, here's the thing. I'm not against buying Starbucks lattes. I buy coffee at my local coffee shop two or three times a week. If there's something that you like and you can afford it after all your important financial goals are taken care of, then let yourself buy it. We're not on this earth to drive numbers in a bank account as high as they can possibly go. Money is a tool that you should use to build a happy life. So drink your $3 coffee if it makes you happy and if doing so is still below your means. But what I'm getting at here is that habits are powerful. Sitting down and creating a strict budget is not likely to change them. Rather, you need to start building changes into your daily routines and attacking the habits at their roots. 
So one really easy way to do this is by paying for everything in cash. Using a credit card makes it really difficult for you to appreciate how much money you're actually spending. And when you actually use cash, you can see the individual dollars leave your wallet or your purse. You can actually see how much is left when you peer into that billfold. And if you want to go further than that, start writing down every purchase that you make. You can carry around a small notebook for this, which is what my friend Martin does, or you can use an app like a spending tracker for your iPhone or smartphone. Um, so this, this manual tracking has actually been really well documented as a uh, successful habit changer in weight loss. Um, the book power of habit, which I have sitting right next to me talks about keystone habits, this, uh, type of habit that starts inspiring other habits and, uh, Page 121, I think it is, talks about how they uh, did this study. Some group of researchers did a study where they they found people and uh, who were overweight, and they asked them just one simple thing: just write down what you eat in a food journal. And the people who did write down the things that they ate ended up losing weight. They ended up starting exercising more. They ended up eating healthier. And it just sort of spurred on these good habits. So uh, manual spending tracking, I've heard from a lot of other people who have tried it out, works in a similar way. It uh, The idea is to make tracking the expense an integral part of the routine portion of your spending habit. When you experience the trigger, the urge to buy something, the process should go like this, like so. Decide whether the purchase is a good decision. Now, remember, this happens after the trigger. You want it, but now you're deciding. And if you decide it's good, you buy the thing. Cool. Now you record the transaction and then you get the reward. Happiness of having this coffee in your mouth or whatever it is. Without recording the transaction, though, it's easy to fail to realize the cost of getting that reward. And so the spending habit continues unchanged. Now, you can get into habit tracking as well to kind of uh, boost this this effectiveness of this method. So one cool idea would be to use a tool like habit RPG. I absolutely love habit RPG to uh, track your progress, recording your transactions, or you could set a daily spend cap and use it to punish yourself with a negative habit. If you surpass it, build a reward for saving money and you'll do it more. All right. So, uh, we are coming in on the home stretch here in just a couple more sections. Number one, plan and research to cut expenses. So in addition to modifying your spending habits, you should also seek out ways that you can lower non-regular expenses. In college, there are tons of ways to do this, and I'll just list a few here. So number one, find the cheapest textbooks. At the very least, use a comparison tool. There's one uh, student rate textbooks. Um, I think there's others out there, but that's the one that I've I've seen to use the find the best prices. Number two, utilize student organizations to do fun things at a subsidized cost. I remember um, ISU, the school I went to, Iowa State, they had like outdoor adventure clubs and you could go on trips. Like you could go to California and surf for like 500 bucks or something. Um, and it was super cheap. The skydiving club is very similar as well. I think it was like 80 bucks to skydive instead of like 180. So there's some cool stuff you could do. Um, you could also see if you could reasonably graduate early. This is something my roommate Martin did. Um, he was totally, he was totally ready to graduate in four years and then sort of thinking, hmm, maybe I could do this in three and a half and then sort of stacked a few more classes on his last semester, had a little bit more work to do, but he saved an entire semester's worth of tuition. He was able to start his full-time job a whole semester earlier. So now he's on track to pay his debt off faster. It's a huge, huge boon to his finances. Uh, you could use a cell phone company like Republic Wireless to get incredibly cheap service. And Republic's actually really cool because they have plans literally five bucks a month and uh, there's no cell service on it. It's only Wi-Fi. But if you're on a campus that's always got Wi-Fi, then 
why do you need cell service? And they have like a $10 one, I think, that adds some cell service for just calls. So if you want to save money and you don't really need the data all the time, then hey man, works pretty well. Um, you could also take some inspiration from people on my site that have done DIY stuff. I've done one for like a hanging loft bed. My friend Aaron did one on how he built a home office with Craigslist and saved a ton of money. So yeah. Yay, frugality. Oh, and I should mention that student rate is also a good place to look for deals on other items besides textbooks. I've seen things like cell phone deals and clothing deals and stuff. So uh, when you're looking to buy new stuff, check something like that. There's also uh, student discounts floating around your campus probably. So just keep an eye out. And if you want to get even further on the frugality train, my podcast interview with Kristen Wong of Brokopedia, which I believe is episode 27 of the podcast, is a good place to start. And I also have a post called 39 Ways You Can Cut the Cost of College, which is linked in the blog post that uh, I'm reading you right now. So that's how you can save money in non-habity ways. So wrapping up. With that, you should have a good idea of how to start budgeting as a student. Now, there are a lot of other topics related to this one, and you might have some leftover questions, but I've already read a lot here, and uh, a lot of these related things don't fall within the scope of this article, but I'm going to answer some of them rapid-fire style anyway, just to kind of get them out of the way. So, number one question could be, how should I pay off my debt? And uh, my answer to that is use the stack method, pay your minimums and then direct any extra funds that you're going to use for your debt to the loan with the highest interest rate first. This is the mathematically best way to pay off your debt in the least amount of time. Now, the one problem with the stack method is you get less of an emotional win if you have a loan with a lower balance but also a lower interest rate, and you're trying to take out this one with a higher interest rate and a higher balance first, you might uh, delay the ability to pay off this lower loan and um, you get like less of a motivational boost because it takes longer to pay off the first one. And motivation is really a, a powerful thing. So my, my, uh, my advice to you to uh, combat this lack of motivation the stack method bring you, brings you is one, try to automate the debt payoff if you if you find that there's a motivational problem but two use a tool like ready for zero to track your progress and stay motivated well ready for zero actually graphs your payoff it can lump all of your debt into one uh, big sum and show you the graph going down show you all your progress and it can sort of simulate that motivational kick you get by paying off a uh, lower balance loan and then at the same time you are paying off your loans in total faster than you would if you didn't use the stack method. So there you go. So where should I invest my money is another question I get often. And that is a big can of worms. I'm a fan of passive investing and I think that you should be too. So to keep it simple, I'd say either Betterment or Vanguard. Betterment is probably the absolute simplest, though it's got a slightly higher expense ratio, which means that uh, for every, you know, for every dollar you have invested with them, they might take point zero three five percent of that or maybe it's point three five percent of that i think at the high at the lowest investment level whereas with vanguard you can get some funds like i'm in one where it's like point one seven percent so you know it's not huge especially when you have a low balance and betterment's super duper duper simple so it could be something but uh yeah i guess if you want to be a little bit geeky about it i will write more about investments soon so keep an eye out for that So another question, I still think I should make a budget. So what do you uh, suggest I do? Well, if all of this still isn't enough for you, dear listener, I've heard good things about this software called You Need a Budget, or you can just use Excel. (laughs) And lastly, what tool do you keep, you use to keep on top of your finances, Tom? Well, I use Mint to make sure that everything's looking good, and I check it once a week. I've got a habit 
uh, laid out in Habit RPG. So I make sure I always log in at least once a week. I check on all my accounts, make sure everything is hunky dory, and then I'm on my way. So, hey, we have gotten to the end of this post, and I can't believe it took me almost 40 minutes to read it. I definitely didn't mean to make it that long, but there was a lot to write. Anyway, hey, if you want to learn more about keeping on top of your finances and all sorts of other topics related to the college life, then there's two things you can do. Firstly, I'll be writing more about managing your money in the future. So to get notified when I do, you can sign up to the College Info Geek newsletter. And here's the cool thing. When you do that, you'll also get a free copy of my 100 plus page book, 10 Steps to Earning Awesome Grades While Studying Less. And if you want to do that, just head on over to collegeinfogeek.com slash book. You can sign up. You'll get the book right away. And then I will keep you updated when I write more financial articles. And those will be spread out among studying articles and habit building articles and articles on how to get a job, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, secondly, I co-host a podcast entirely about money called Listen Money Matters. And along with my friend Andrew, we talk to um, guests who are awesome. We just talked to the uh, CEO of a company called LearnVest recently. We talked to people who are tax experts. We talked to people who are habit building experts, all sorts of cool stuff. And then a lot of times we just sort of uh, sit around and BS and talk about what we know about money and sort of uh, figure it out on our own. So it's fun. It's conversational. Andrew knows a lot about money. I know a okay amount i guess enough to write a post like this so you may learn something and new episodes come out three times a week so listen money com slash show is where you find the show and uh, that's all i have for this weird audio narration thing so hopefully you enjoyed it you know what if you did enjoy it you can email me over at thomas at college com and tell me hey i listened to this and i actually like it and if i get enough feedback then maybe i'll do audio narrations for other posts i write that kind of warrant them so yeah (laughs) um that's all i gotta say so hopefully you learned something and goodbye